Good morning. I'd like to thank you all for coming out this morning. I'd especially like to welcome our, our visitors, uh, Sister Banning. It's uh, certainly a pleasure to have met you, and we are encouraged by having you here with us. This morning, <clears throat> I want to talk about an issue that uh, recently was asked to me, what issues that I, I see facing the church today, uh, modern issues that the church is going to have to face. And I want to talk to you about the... Uh, what I came up with from that question. Uh, and the, the issue that I see, the issue that I see that we face, the issue that I see that it is very much growing and, and nestling itself inside the hearts and minds of, of Christians today. Um, before we can get into that, I wanted just a little bit of um, maybe how we got to this point. It's no secret that the society that we live in, it, it, we have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of freedom. We have the right to vote who our leaders are. We have the right to vote for who's going to represent us to those leaders. And even on, on certain levels, we even have the right to vote over the laws that are passed, whether we agree or disagree with them. And while we can definitely agree that it's far from being a perfect uh, system, we can truthfully say that we are blessed under the government that, that serves us. But these, these freedoms that we, that we have, that I feel at times, they, they can be a little bit detrimental to ourselves. At times we can develop this attitude of maybe thinking just a little bit higher of ourselves than we should. We can look around at the society that we live in, and it's not too hard to see that there are several people who are self-centered, that are focusing um, so much time on themselves. And even looking back through my life, at a young age, I can see these philosophies that, that kind of produce this type of thinking, being uh, uh, surrounding, uh, per se, our, our education. You know, we were pushed in school to, to excel in school. You're pushed to do the very best that you can, but very little focus is ever paid on helping out those around you. It's always about getting it for yourself and, and trying to understand it for yourself. Sports, we, we see in sports that we push you to be the very best that you can be, to, to dominate your competition. You've you got to gotta go out there, you've got to give it your all, and you've got to win it. Um, the same idea, we, we have this idea of go to college. Go to college, get the best degree you can get so you can get the best house and the, or the best job to get the best house, to, to live the American dream. An American dream that revolves really about doing the best that you can do for the most important person that you will ever know. That's that man in the mirror. That's yourself. Now, I don't bring these up to say that we should obviously we don't need to pull our children out of school and homeschool them. We don't need to go to a society that's sports. Everybody wins, and college obviously is a good thing. And I'm not saying this to suggest that we need to go about changing these things, but we need to be aware that we can have this attitude of selfishness creep up in our lives. And when we see this, when we understand that that people can become selfish through the society we live in. It's not too hard to imagine the church being comprised mainly of people becoming selfish itself. And I don't think that's what Christ had in mind. I don't think that's what Christ was looking for. When we look at passages such as Ephesians 4.16, <clears throat> Ephesians 4.16, For whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. We see here that each part does its part for the building up of what? For the building up of itself? 
Is, is the hand doing its part so that the hand gets stronger? No, we see that each part does its part for the building up of the whole, of the body. 1 Peter 4.9, again, is a, a passage that, that shows something that, that I believe Christ would expect. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another, and to do it in a certain way, without grumbling. We can see that it's, it's not our own betterment that we are supposed to be looking out for, but rather the betterment of others. This hospitality, it's not something that we show to ourselves. Hospitality is something that we show to those around us. 1 Thessalonians First Thessalonians 4, uh, we read another, is another passage where we see in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, uh, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you're also doing. The idea of encouraging, of comforting, these are actions that we are to take for the benefit of others. And then the, uh, lastly, Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 1. In fact, we... Hebrews 13.1 is a passage short enough that I just went ahead and put it up on the, on the PowerPoint. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. It's this point that I want to discuss with you today. It's this point that I have seen as, as an issue that I think the church is facing. We must understand the importance of brotherly love and the effect that it has on the church. You see, in Matthew 28, when, when Jesus commissioned His disciples to go and to teach and, and to expand His kingdom... I believe that there were certain attributes that He expects to find present in that kingdom when He returns. I can imagine Jesus coming back and, and coming to, going to a church and going, well, there's, there's some things here that I don't see that I expected I would see. Maybe, maybe it's mercy. There's some, I would expect to see mercy in my kingdom, but I don't see that there. Is that really a description of my kingdom? Or maybe He would come back... And he would expect to see the, the truth being taught. And he looks around and sees things uh, straying away from the authority that we have in the Bible. There are so many things that we can look at, but I think brotherly love is obviously one attribute that he's going to come back and he's going to expect to see in his kingdom. And when we consider, as I mentioned earlier, that people today, at least in a secular sense, people today tend to be selfish. That is to say, they tend to look out for themselves. They tend to look out for the betterment of their own position in life. We see that potential for that to creep into the church. And when we begin to understand this, we can understand that this is going to leave us in a detrimental state. So maybe if we have a better understanding of brotherly love, maybe that will help us to see not only where maybe we're lacking ourselves in this aspect, but also how we might be able to grow as a whole in this aspect. So to begin, let's examine what is brotherly love. The word for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia in the Greek. That shouldn't be too huge of a shock to us as today still we, we understand this word. We think of Philadelphia as being the city of brotherly love. We understand that. But to really understand brotherly love, I think we need to first understand what is love. What is love in itself? And unfortunately, we have, thanks in part to the entertainment industry, and I know I put Hollywood up here, but it's not just Hollywood. We have blurred the true meaning of love. We have blurred the lines that define love. You know, you might hear a, a phrase today. One might say, possibly referring to a first date. Maybe, maybe it was a blind date. When, when he, the, the guy was sitting at the table and then his girl walks in and she, she sits down. It's the first time he's laid eyes on her. Didn't have no idea he was going to be set up with this girl. And he says, it was love at first sight. It's like, wow, it was just, when I saw this woman, she was so beautiful. And it was just love at first sight. 
Or maybe a teenage girl goes around telling her friends that she just loves her new boyfriend, loves him so much. Oftentimes in life, we wait for, for that one person, that, that right person to come along that sparks the emotion of love in our life. Sometimes saying things such as, I'm just waiting for that, for that right chemistry. Or, or maybe saying, I, I just didn't feel the click, the click that I thought would be there if we truly loved one another. All these statements express a lack of understanding of what love really is. See, it's so much more than just a mere emotion. It's so much more than just that warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is used in two different ways in the Bible. The first way that it's used is phileo. This is this idea of brotherly love. The second, other way it's used is agape. Agape is a word that, that we need to understand if we're going to understand phileo love. Agape is a more powerful type of love. Turn over real quick to 1 John. If you're still in 1 Peter, just a few pages over. 1 John 3.16. In 1 John 3.16, agape love is defined for us. By this we know love. By this we know agape. Because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, if you want to, if you want to turn over... To, to John 3.16. The, the exact same terminology is going to sound very familiar or very similar to what we just read. John 3.16, a passage we all probably have memorized. For God so loved the world, again, agape, for God so agape, loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This idea here, this agape, it defines a, a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love, and it's sometimes described as an active goodwill. In sacrificing His life for our sins, Jesus demonstrates this active goodwill. And i got to say, I'm so glad that, that God didn't wait for the warm and fuzzy. I'm glad that He didn't wait to fall in love with me before He chose to love me. Because see, that's what happens when, when we view this love as this warm and fuzzy feeling. That obviously emotion is tied to love, but when we view it as just as warm and fuzzy as maybe this, uh, this guy on this blind date that falls in, in love at first sight. But then later he gets to meet the, the cold and the rough and the ragged edges uh, of this girl. Or, or the young girl that, that falls in love with her new boyfriend but finds out later that, well, he's a teenage boyfriend and he's rude and, and he doesn't call and he's not considerate and he doesn't think about me. He doesn't wait for me after class. He just acts like I'm not even there when his friends are around. We see that when the warm and fuzzy meets the cold and the jagged, love is not just that emotion. It's how that emotion is carried out. It's how that emotion is acted upon. It is when we begin to understand this agape type of love that we can really truly start to understand phileo love. Phileo love for one another. And whether it be a, a family member, as in a mother, or a father, sibling, spouse, child, or whether it be our, our spiritual family, our brethren, <clears throat> we are to sacrifice ourselves for them. Now there are times when this could mean that, that we are literally to give our lives for them, but more often than not, it means that we are to live for them. This is what brotherly love revolves around. It's about being more like Christ and less like the world. It's about being transformed rather than conformed. It's like being the light, the salt of the earth as we have read, not having that self-centered attitude. 
that is so prevalent today, but having that active good uh, goodwill, having this active looking out for the betterment of one another. Let me give you an illustration of this. <clears throat> Two brothers inherit their their father's land when he passes away. This is this is a Jewish fable that I that I heard over the past uh, couple months. And when they inherited their father's land, they divide the land right down the center. And, and they each take their side of the property and they farm it. And they farm it for wheat. Now, the older brother, he, he marries and he has six children, while the younger brother never marries. And one night, the, the younger brother's lying awake in bed and he thinks, you know, it's just not fair that we divided this land right down the middle. I look at my older brother and I see that he has six children to feed. And he has a wife to take care of. And I have the same amount of land that he has. And I grow the same amount of wheat that he grows. I should, have, I should give him some of my wheat so that he can better, uh, be better prepared to feed his family. I, what I will do tonight is I will gather some extra wheat on a cart and I will take it and I will put it in his barn. That same night, the older brother, he's lying awake in his bed. And he thinks, you know what? It's not fair that we divided this land right down the middle. I have six children. And when I get old, those six children, they're going to take care of me. And their grandchildren are going to take care of me. But my younger brother, he has no children. He has no one to take care of him in his old age. I'm going to take some of my wheat, and I'm going to put it on a cart, and I'm going to take it to his barn, and I'm going to put it in it so that he might have more wheat to sell in his young age to put away for a, for a, a, a life of dignity in his old age. So they both do this. They gather up their wheat and they put it on carts. And under the shadow of the moon, as they both approach the, the center point of the land, they notice a figure approaching. And when they finally realize what had happened and what was going on, it says that they dropped their carts and they embraced. These brothers got it. These brothers understood that brotherly love is about sacrifice. And brotherly love is about more than just speaking. Brotherly love is active. It is a doing. We must have that same attitude today. And unfortunately, a lot of times we, we kind of fail at this. Sometimes we, we don't quite get all the way there with this idea of brotherly love. But another point to point out is that's not, this is not a new problem. It's not something that's just going on today. If we want to turn over to James in chapter 2, we're going to see that James saw this going on as well. <clears throat> James chapter 2 and verse 1 and 4, James is going to talk about how something that he saw in the church of that day. I can imagine James maybe standing in the, in the back of the, of the church looking and, and going, this preferential treatment that I see going on here, that's not going to cut it. That's not right. This, this treating people who are, who are more uh, pleasantly appearanced, uh, that, that's not what God wants. Let's read in verse, starting in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, what James was saying here is, is doing this is not true love. You're not loving the brethren when you show partiality. No, what you're doing is you're showing love because. Love because of what you can do for me. Love because of who you are. And that's not true love. That's not what, what Jesus wanted in, in, in His kingdom. And Jesus Himself points it out in Matthew 5. 
on the Sermon of the, on the Mount, when Jesus is talking to to the uh, <clears throat> to all that were listening about greeting one another in Matthew five, uh, five excuse me, Matthew five verses forty six. He says, "For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more?" Uh, what do you do more than others? Do you do not even the tax collectors do the same? He's saying, what is so special about loving someone that's going to love you back? See, that's not true love either. That's love if. I will love you if you are my friend. I will love you if I will receive something back for it. I will love you if it won't cost me anything. And again, this is not true love. Jesus would rather go on to show us that true love is not love because, is not love if, it's love in spite of. Love in spite of what I will benefit. Love in spite of who is the recipient. We'll come back to this idea later. But for now, understanding what it is that brotherly love truly is, let's look at how can we resolve the problem. And it begins with probably one of the most well-known verses of the Bible. Many people today just have this verse memorized, or at least the idea of it memorized, but many people don't even know it comes from the Bible. Don't know that it's from God's own lips. It's recorded for us in Matthew 7, 12, uh, but I, I believe we could probably think of it without even turning there. Just the three simple words will draw our minds to it. The golden rule. The golden rule. Do unto others. Uh, and actually in Matthew 7, it, it reads, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We see is most people, they agree that if everyone lived by this rule, if everyone lived by this teaching, the world would be a much better place. Yet, few people actually apply this principle in their lives. And when Jesus spoke these words, He wasn't simply reinventing the wheel, so to speak. He, he was rewording a passage that they already knew. Leviticus 19.18. A passage that might be uh, fairly uh, less common for us to be able to recall the tips of her tongue. Leviticus 19.18, If you, uh, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If you've been able to, to be in class uh, with us on, on, our, on Sunday mornings, we've talked a lot about these I am statements, how, how God is punctuating this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. You... That is all the authority that you need for this statement. Jesus wasn't coming up with some brand new idea that they had never heard of before. But rather, He was preaching with this same type of authority. Love one another. Treat people how you want to be treated. Unfortunately today, uh, many people, they, they, they choose to live by a different rule other than this golden rule. In Luke 10, if you want to turn over, we're actually going to... We have several of these rules, these, these ideas recorded for us. Over in Luke 10, we have the, the story of, of the Good Samaritan. Uh, starting in verse 20, 25, we read how, how this man was traveling down the road. And we, we, we all know the story, so we're not going to go all the way through it. But we know that as he was traveling, some thieves approach him on the road and they, they beat him up. And they steal from him, they rob him, they leave him for dead. And we see how some men come along, a, a Levite and a priest, and how they, they see him and they, they pass on the other side of the road. But the Samaritan who comes along and helps him, 
does more than just help him, but takes him to a place of where, where he'll be safe. And, and does more than just take him there, but says, I'll, I'll pay you what I have now, and I'll come back and I'll pay you more later. Give him whatever he needs. There are three basic attitudes that I see depicted in this, in this parable. And the first one being the, the iron rule. The iron rule. What's yours is mine, and, and if I can, I'm going to take it. This rule is represented by the thieves, uh, men having not the least concern for their fellow man. The second rule that I see is the silver rule. What's mine belongs to me, and, and I'm going to keep it. We see this illustrated by the priest and the Levite, two religious people uh, of that time, and their attitude is quite reflective of many Christians today, this idea of non-involvement. In fact, this attitude of passiveness is later condemned by Jesus in Matthew 25 when, when He talks about those who, who, who didn't feed Him and didn't clothe Him and didn't visit Him when He was in prison or when He was sick. And they say, when, when did we ever see you this way? And He says, when the least, that you didn't do this for the least of these, you didn't do this for Me. We see Jesus is not, and God is not, a, in favor of this attitude of passiveness. And then finally, we see the, the Samaritan and the golden rule. What I have, what I have belongs to God. And I'm going to use it in accordance to His will. That's what we see being depicted by the Samaritan. And time and time again, we see Jesus epitomizing this rule. Now, the world, the world is quite often consumed by the iron rule. But we're going to give the benefit of the doubt that, that most members of the body of Christ, they've moved beyond that. They've put away the iron rule. But... Unfortunately, many uh, could still be said today that they do live by this silver rule. And, and now you might be tempted to say, well, you know, uh, that's pretty good. At least I'm not a thief. I'm not an iron rule kind of guy. I'm a silver kind of guy. Silver's better than iron. I'll take silver any day of the week over iron. You know, there's more value in silver. But I want to ask that question. Are we worse than a thief whenever we live by the silver rule? I suggest that we don't sit at ease just yet. You see, the people who behave like the priest and the Levite, Christians who have this attitude of what's mine is mine, I want to suggest that they are worse than the thieves. Now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now, the, the Levite and the priest didn't beat the guy up. The Levite and the priest didn't rob the guy. They didn't leave him there for dead. All they simply did was walk by. Maybe they had a really good reason. Maybe they were late for something. Or maybe the thieves were still out there and they were afraid that they would be mugged themselves. It can't be true that the, the Levites and priests were worse than the thief. I want to turn over to Acts 5 <clears throat> in illustrating this, this idea. <clears throat> Acts 5 and verses 1 through 4, we read of the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. And in verse 1, we're going to read that what they did, they, they purposed to sell a property. It was a good thing. They were going to get, sell a property and give a portion to the apostles. But then in verse 2, we're going to see that. that what they did and what they actually did were two different stories altogether. Starting in verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart and, have not, and you have not lied to men but to God? Peter accuses them of not lying to men 
but of lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. Now, when we choose to serve God, when we are baptized into Jesus' death, we are signing an agreement. We are signing an agreement of faith that says, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be obedient to the teachings of Christ, to, to the gospel. But if we are claiming to be Christians, just like this priest and this Levite, they would have claimed to have been righteous people. If we're claiming to be Christians, but we exhibit attitudes and behaviors that are contrary to His teachings, then we are guilty of lying to God. Now con- consider this. There were many people that day that, uh, that were living by the iron rule. <clears throat> but were, they were not struck dead. There were many people that day who were not selling possessions. They were saying, that's my possession, I'm not going to sell it. There were many people that day who were going, I don't know who this Jesus guy is, I'm not going to do anything for him. I don't care who these apostles are, I'm not getting rid of my stuff. And then you had two people that were going, okay, I'll sell my goods and I'll give some to the apostles. But they were doing it with dishonesty in their heart. None of these other people were struck dead. None of these people that were living under this iron rule were struck dead, but the two people that were living under this silver rule, this idea of what's mine is mine, I'm going to keep it if I can, they were struck dead. And it goes to show that we can can have this attitude of middle of the road. And James 4.17 and Revelation 3.15.16, they go on to show that this is not acceptable. If you want to turn over to, to James real quick. James 4.17 says, For him that knoweth to do good, therefore for him knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know what is good for you to do, you can't just play middle of the road. and I I know it's good, but that's not what I want to do. No, for him that knoweth to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Revelation, uh, in verse 3, we read about how this middle of the road idea is considered as lukewarm. And how Jesus would much rather, God would much rather be hot or cold. He says in in, uh, verse 15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We think of that. That that is the the attitude that God takes towards this this silver rule, this, this being in the middle, not, not choosing a side, but maybe, maybe kind of standing on one edge of the fence or the other. He will vomit you out of his mouth, as he says. So we can begin to understand that this principle, this principle of being selfless, of not being selfish, of, of doing, uh, having this brotherly love on towards others, and not playing middle of the road, but choosing to, to, to be this, this uh, as it was, the golden rule. It's a practice that we need to put into our lives. So maybe we're asking ourselves, well, how can I do that? How can I put this into practice? Well, the first thing I want to point out is it's, it's, there's some things that it's not by doing. We don't put this into practice. We can't put this into practice in our life if we're constantly griping and complaining about others. Philippians 2.4 goes, just goes, comes straight out and says, don't do this. Don't, don't have this kind of uh, this attitude. And, and 2.14, do all things without complaining. I mean, disputing. Maybe someone is doing a lousy, lousy job building up the body. Maybe someone is, is just doing absolutely nothing at all in helping the body grow. Brotherly love doesn't complain and doesn't gossip and doesn't gripe about that person. Brotherly love encourages that person. Brotherly love takes an active stance in helping that person. 
Another thing we can we cannot do is, is don't be overly or unjustly critical. Sometimes we get into this habit of, of looking around at others and saying that they don't do enough. Maybe, maybe we, we, even worse than that, we think a little bit higher of ourselves and say, we, look what I'm doing. They don't do enough to match up to what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, up, I'm up here preaching. Or I'm up here leading songs. Or I'm up here helping out with the Lord's Supper. This person over here, all they ever do is show up and go home. Brotherly love doesn't look at things in comparison like that. Brotherly love looks at the good works that each and every person does. Brotherly love looks at ways that we can that our brothers and sisters contribute to the kingdom. Even in just showing up, brotherly love looks at that person and and doesn't blame them. They don't blame them and and and, and say you're the reason that we're not growing. In fact, brotherly love never blames others and, and, doesn't, or, and forgets to look at itself. If there is a problem in our local congregation, while, while we might not be the cause of the problem, I, I might not have anything to do with the problem, brotherly love is going to ask itself, am I guilty of not making any efforts whatsoever to, to resolve the problem? If, if there is someone who is slipping away, am I guilty of not ever going out and reaching out to that person do I say I love my brother, but when they're in true need, when, when they really need our help, do I just stand back and just kind of ignore? Do I walk on that other side of the road as they're beating on the, uh, and, and bleeding out? And lastly, another thing we don't do is we don't delight in making life miserable for others. Now, you might think that's, that's an odd statement. Who, who on earth delights in making life miserable for others? Well, I'm going to say this is something that's kind of hard for me. This is something that I struggle with. And not that I like to make life miserable for others, but there are times when we go too far. When we can take harmless ribbing and joking around and, and begin to discourage our brethren. Brotherly love is mindful of that. Brotherly love thinks about how others feel. If we're still over in Philippians 2, look in verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. <clears throat> Brotherly love is, is, getting, is, is getting right to the heart of the matter. Brotherly love is less of self. Brotherly love is more of others and less of self. And also, brotherly love, going along with this idea, brotherly love compliments others. And this might be a very materialistic compliment. You might say, they say, you know, Sister Anna, you look beautiful today. And I've just, it might be Charles, it's so good to see you, that you're looking sharp, that tie looks good, I like that color pink, it really brings out your eyes. No, we, that could be one way that we compliment one another. But a more spiritualistic side of complimenting is maybe you know the songs that were led I appreciate Carl's songs that he chose this morning it helped to focus my mind on the reason we were here Logan's words at the Lord's Supper the prayers that were led these all, all these things that they help and we can compliment one another brotherly love is mindful of what each and every person is doing now I compliment uh, Sister Coyle because it just her being here encourages me so much I'm so thankful to see her Every time that I do, we can do this. And in doing so, we can be true friends. Not just those who pay lip service to one another, but those who truly care about the sorrows and those who truly care about the joys of their fellow brethren. 
This leads right into our next point of being sympathetic and compassionate. Romans 12.15 talks about weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. These are all ways that, that we can put the, the, the practice of brotherly love into our life and, and finally teaching others about the gospel. There's very true that there's those that just didn't realize brotherly love was really that big a deal. And we can teach them that it is. And we can teach them why. Why it is. And why we must resolve the problem. Because the fact is, true righteousness, true righteousness demands this selfless love. But it demands a certain type of selfless love. A love that rests solidly upon God's gracious love for us. So finally, I've shown you this problem that I see facing the church. This, this idea of brotherly love or possibly the lack thereof. And I've shown you ways in which we can resolve it. We can be less selfish, more selfless. We can live by this golden rule. We can think about others more than ourselves. But then here's the question, why? Why do we need to do this brotherly love thing? Does does it really matter? Well, let's consider one last point. Why we must let brotherly love continue. And for starters, it's because it's a commandment. Hebrews 13.1 that we had on the board. Let brotherly love continue. That is not read... Yeah, maybe. Maybe if you feel like this brotherly love thing, if that sounds appeasing to you, and it's not too, uh, it's not too inconvenient, that'd be something that I would kind of appreciate if you did. Maybe on the weekends and and just whenever it's in on your mind, do that. No, Hebrews thirteen one is a commandment. Let brotherly love continue. I want this done. Do it. And then even over in John thirteen, if we we'll turn over to John thirteen verse thirty four, we we read it again that it's commanded. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now on this passage right here, I couldn't help but wonder, what is so new about this commandment? What's so new about this commandment when Jesus says, love one another? Well, love's not new. We just read a minute ago. He wasn't reinventing the wheel in Matthew seven twelve. Love isn't new. Leviticus 19.18 talked about love your neighbor. This is something they all would have known. I think where the new part of this commandment comes in is the latter part of verse 34. As I have loved you. Love one another. That's not the new part. As I have loved you. Here's the new part. As the standard I have set for you. We see in verses, uh, in verses 1-5, through five, Jesus set an example for us. Uh, in this passage. And I'm going to be honest, I can't help but read this passage and, and get just a little bit sentimental because it shows the attitude, the love that Jesus had. So oftentimes we think of the love Jesus had through His sacrifice for us. But look at Jesus' behavior as He knows He's about to go to the cross. In verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father... Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God, He rose from supper. He laid aside His garment and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Put yourself in that position. These men know. They know who Jesus is. And Jesus, as I I imagine it, He gets up without saying a word. And He goes to work. 
in demonstrating His love for them. As He wraps this towel around Him, as He fix, uh, pours the water, and He bends down. And I can't help but think of John the Baptist when he says that I'm not worthy to even loosen your sandal. And, and, and here Jesus is saying to His apostles, take your sandals off. I'm going to wash the bottom of your feet. I'm going to wash your... The, in my mind, the most, one of the most disgraceful parts of the body, the bottom of your feet, that's love. That's love. That's active. Jesus was showing His followers that if we're going to love like He did, we are going to have to, to have this attitude with, uh, within us. Even when we know that others are out to get us. As he knew Judas was out to get Him. And He knew that Peter was going to deny Him. But still, He chose to love them. And not just to say He loved them, but to, to show them. In verse 15, to set an example. And, an example that He set for them, an example that He sets for us. It leaves no doubt into my mind that this is what He meant when He said, as I have loved you, as I have set the standard, a standard that is humble, it is full of humility, a standard that is pure and, and, and is serving and is active, a standard that is active. As I said, He could have just said He loved them, but He showed He loved them. It brings to mind 1 John 3.18. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And as I say, the worst thing that we can do, well, the worst things that we can do is we can say we love one another, but never show that we love one another. We can say that we love, but, but show that we don't love. In fact, doing so is, is, is a hypocrite. Doing so is being one who is a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. That's someone, as, as 1 John 4.8 says, doesn't know God. 1 John 4.8, if you want to turn over there real quick and read this passage, there's a beautiful song. A beautiful song that we sometimes sing about this. God is love. For he, does not, for he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We think about that for a minute. It's necessary for us to realize that we don't know God if we don't know love. To illustrate this point for a minute, um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> pick on, on Sister Harper for a moment. If, if I go to her, her children and, and I treat their, her children badly, if, I, if I'm treating Alexis and Aaron badly and harshly, and, I, and then turn around and go to her and, and say, Ann, I love you. I love you so much. You know, she's going to be very tempted to say, no, you don't. You don't love me. You treat my children... If you loved me, you would treat my children with love. You would treat my children with love because I've spent considerable amount of time training my children. And I love my children. And, and I want to look out for what's best for them. But you come over here and you treat them with meanness and contentment. You don't, you don't care for them. That shows that you don't truly love me. Now, I'm not saying Anne would ever say that, but it, that, that idea, how much more so can be said of God. We say, I love you, God, but if we're mistreating His children, if we're mistreating anyone for that matter, but specifically our brothers and our sisters, can it be said that we truly know God? No. No, it can't. So, so let us love one another. Let us let brotherly love continue. <clears throat> Now, I really want to thank each and every one of you for, for being here this morning because it shows your love not only for, for every one of us, but it shows your love for God. It shows your love for His Word. But I want to encourage you not to simply just take this message and, and, and kind of 
file it away. Don't just take this message and, and come up afterwards and say, good job. I'll certainly appreciate that. But, but don't just do that and then continue going on in the same old fashion in which you live your life. Be doers of the Word. And maybe you're listening and you're going, okay, but I'm, I'm already pretty good at this loving thing. That's great. Be better. Be better at loving. I want to leave you with one final thought before we go on. <clears throat> Romans 5, 7 through 8. In Romans 5, 7 through 8, we read, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone wouldn't even dare to die. Now, I, I think about this passage so much. It's, all, it's been on my mind a lot here lately. And I think the contemporary English version words this a little bit easier for me to understand. The contemporary English version says, no one is really willing to die for a good man. No one's really willing to give their life for a good man. Someone might give their life. They might be willing to do so for a, for a, a truly good man. But, but just for, for an average man, no one is really willing to give their lives. But then going on in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, we weren't a good man, we weren't an honest man, we weren't righteous, we were sinners. And Christ died for us. Next time you look at your brothers and sisters, especially one whom you might have a grudge against. In fact, I want to recommend that if there's someone here today that, that you hold a grudge against or you, there's something that, that you just aren't happy about, maybe you've had an argument in the past and it's unresolved, don't leave here today without setting that right. And when you look at them, I want you to remember that idea of love in spite of. I'm going to love you in spite of what you've done to me. I'm going to love you in spite of what I might lose for loving you. And I want you to remember that God loved them enough to give His only begotten Son. Shouldn't I love them as well? Think about that for a moment. God loved them enough. God loved you enough to give His only begotten Son. To give His Son who come, on the, come to this earth and to sacrifice His life. To shed His blood for the remission of your sins. If it be your will this morning to become a child of God, if, if that is something that you desire, know that there's only one way to do so. It is through obedience to Christ. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing number five. You want to go ahead and get your songbooks out. How great thou art. I can't, think, I can't help but think of that when I think of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. When I think of the love that God actively showed for us, I can't help but think how great thou art. If you choose this morning to come to Christ, if you choose to, to accept the sacrifice that He has made on your behalf and, and to follow Him in obedience, to come forward and to confess that He is the Son of God, but not just the Son of God, but the living Son of God, and to be baptized into that death on the cross, or through the miracle of regeneration we, we see in, in 1 Peter 3.21 where our sins are washed away. If that be your will this morning, won't you please come forward now as we stand and sing.